Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Genesis 1, a great, great passage. Um, It's no exaggeration to claim that the two verses that we're going to read today are among the most influential words ever written. And I know that sometimes you could hear something like that and be a little bit skeptical of the truth of a claim so grand as that one, but certainly when these words are heeded, um, there is right interaction of people with one another and even of people to God. And when these words are ignored or forgotten, the consequences are disastrous. And so we'll read Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27 about the image of God and how God created us. And just even as a, maybe a, a short preface before we begin a reading like this one, I, I've, I've recognized even in my own life that, that we fill our minds with so much information during the course of the week through social media and TV and, and listening to podcasts and radios and all kinds of information. We live in the information age that that this moment in the week where we open the Word of God could feel like just one more option in how we should view the world, just some some more information, um, almost as it's like the rest of the information that we um, take in the rest of the week. But living in that deluge of information, we might be tempted to turn our minds off to learning at times. But I encourage you today to to focus, um, to, to focus with your heart and with your mind on these two amazing verses of the Word of God. This is God's Word for us today. I encourage you to open your mind and pay attention to this passage in a way that perhaps you do not pay attention to some of the other sources of information that you consume during the course of the week. An old hymn um, about the Bible once taught that words of life and beauty teach me faith and duty. And these are wonderful words of life that teach us faith and duty. And so uh, with knowledge of that, I I hope that we could, could approach God's word with great anticipation today. Let's pray before I read the passage. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I hope that when you leave church today, you will know what a human being is. That sounds a little insultingly simple, doesn't it? But don't we know if we think about our culture and the world we live in today that there is actually great confusion concerning that matter? What does it mean to be human? Are people really any different than rocks or dogs or trees? And if so, if we are different than the other parts, components of God's creation, what is it that makes us different? 
There are a number of directions that we could go with these verses. Um, Very large books, even libraries of books, have been written just on these two verses of the Old Testament. But this morning we will consider um, one aspect of the passage. I'm thinking about the value of being made in the image of God and then therefore the demands of being made in the image of God. The sermon will be really cut into halves today. The value of being made in God's image, what does that mean for us as people? And then the demands of being made in the image of God um, as we are as people. So firstly, the value of being made in God's image. And we can start by thinking about yourself, that you have value, you have value, because you are made in the image of of God. In his work of creation, God clearly ascribes a special value to humanity, a value that's different than all of the rest of his creation. By proclaiming that male and female have been made in the image of God, the Lord has, was setting apart humanity from everything else that he made. That people have a heart. And we don't just mean that in the physical sense, but we mean that in the sense that, that you have a, a heart with, with desires and emotions and hopes. That people have a mind. And again, we don't just mean that in the sense that you have a brain, because all kinds of other creatures have brains. Some creatures have more than one brain. That you have a mind. And we, we mean that in the theological, philosophical sense, that you have Again, hopes and emotions and, and a purpose for being that is different than the rest of God's creation because you have a mind. That you have a will. That's part of being made in the image of God that is different than any other creature that God has made. That, that humanity has a will, a conscience that should be more and more in line with God's uh, will uh, for you. So this doesn't mean that the rest of creation is worthless or disposable, but it does help us in determining how we should think about ourselves in relation to the rest of the physical world, that, that the human has a heart, a mind, and a will is made in God's image. So therefore, has a special value in the world that God made. Jesus taught exactly this in the Sermon on the Mount. He confirmed all of this teaching in a a very creative and winsome way. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching about worry, and he says to the people who are listening, they're gathered on the hillside, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? So even right there, Jesus is saying humanity has a value that is greater than that of of sparrows. Or he also goes on to say, even the lilies of the fields in all of their beauty, they're so gloriously beautiful that you, God will take care of you because you're more valuable than those lilies of the fields that that grow and die and wither and are are, are tossed into, into a fire. So the story of creation and the words of Jesus tell you that, that you have a special value in the sight of God. And again, this doesn't mean that sparrows are worthless or lilies are worthless. It tells you that you really matter to God. 
Jesus' teaching in that section of the Sermon on the Mount is about not being anxious. He told his listeners, do not worry. And the essence of his teaching there is, why should you not worry? Because you're valuable to God. Because you matter to him. One thing that I found in my prison ministry uh, that sadly was sort of cut off by the COVID pandemic, but having gone to the prison um, over a hundred times in the years leading up to that, one thing that I would notice among so many of the inmates that I would interact with is that they had a low view of their own value, of their own worth. And so um, sometimes we think of somebody who would commit a crime as just having a low view of the value of other people. And we'll get to that in just a moment. And that could be the case, why so many men and women are in prison in our nation. But that really starts with having a low view of oneself. I could think of of one guy who, who just didn't really care that much about taking care of his own physical body and was just kind of, you know, limping along with, with a problem with his leg. And he wouldn't go to the doctor. And, and that really stems from having a low self-worth. Or you see this occasionally with uh, confused homeless people who, who walk right across the street in, in traffic. I think of driving down McHenry Avenue in Modesto. Why do people do that? They, because they have a low view of their own value and worth. That they might as well just walk across a, a street where there's traffic, where they're in danger because they don't really value their own life. So that should be one of the lessons of this doctrine of being made in the image of God, that every person, including you, has real value. You matter. And Jesus said, do not worry, because you who bear God's image are valuable. Something that God has made in his own image is going to be something that is valuable to him. He cares for his whole creation, and he loves his creation. How much more will he value and care for you who are a special part of his creation? So that's point one, the value of being made in God's image as it applies to you. Now this passage also certainly will impact how we think of other people. And so male male and female, God created all of humanity as having his image, his imprint upon them. This means that not only you are valuable, but every person who has ever been conceived has value in God's sight. It might be easy for a person to to believe that you are valuable, but the doctrine of being made in God's image extends also to the people around you. Just as I said, every person ever conceived in this world made in the image of God. And for help with this doctrine, we could find countless passages in the Old and New Testaments that tell us to love our neighbors as ourselves, that tell us to to treat people with dignity because people matter, not just to God, but should also matter to us. James 3 verse 9 tells us about how remembering the value of other people will impact how we talk about other people. Referring to a person's tongue, James writes, with the tongue, with our mouths, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And so James is warning against doing that, that these people who are made in the image of God, we should speak of with encouragement. 
and kindness rather than gossiping or slandering or being insulting towards people. John wrote in, in his, his first epistle that if we don't love the people around us, that we actually don't love God. It's a sobering description, a very serious passage in 1 John 4. If, if there's no love in your heart for the people around you, John says, there's no love of God in you either. But there's also a, a little phrase, so that's sort of establishing the biblical um, warrant for treating other people with value. Um, but there's a little phrase from a children's book that drives the point home, I think, quite well that I, I hope we can remember as we, we leave from church today. The book is Horton Hears a Who. It's a Dr. Seuss book. And um, it's a great children's book. Um, and in the book, if you haven't read it maybe for a little while, uh, there's a situation where there's an elephant <clears throat> named Horton, and of course elephants have large ears, and this, according to the book, enables them to hear things that other creatures cannot hear. And over the course of the story, Horton hears these who's, which are tiny, invisible to the, to the naked eye, um, people living on a little flower as it floats around in the wind. It's a whole community living on this flower, like it's almost like a planet, a community. And all these who's are living on there, and as they're floating around, they cry out for help, and because of Horton's big ears, he's able to hear the who's calling out for help. And over the course of the story, the animals around Horton doubt his sanity. They ridicule him for caring about something so small, something that they actually regard as imaginary. It's not even real. But Horton has heard them, so he knows they're there. And it all culminates in the great line that Horton tells to all of the animals around him, a person's a person, no matter how small. A person's a person, no matter how small. So what helped Horton hear the tiny little who's, his big ears? And so from reading that children's story, we can ask, kind of metaphorical question, do we have big ears to listen to people who are being devalued or dismissed? Do we have big, maybe spiritual ears to, to listen and say someone is being ignored, but a person's a person no matter how small, no matter how old or how young or how sick or how small how needy that person might be. That person is a person made in the image of God. History is littered with examples of people or even whole nations that regarded certain types of people as more valuable than other types of people. The racist institution of American slavery and segregation was built on that foundation. The Holocaust was built on that foundation, that that the, the Aryan people would be more valuable than, than Jewish people, than communists, than homosexual people, than gypsies. All of those people would be considered less valuable and therefore even sadly and sinfully disposable. The institution of the abortion industry is completely built on that very same principle 
forgetting that a person is a person no matter how small. It's all built on the same basic belief that there are types of people in this world who are more valuable or less deserving of life than other types of people. An example of this, a very sad situation concerning people with Down syndrome in Europe. I think I've used the illustration once several years ago that that very, very sadly, uh, European culture, which prides itself on being so enlightened and so progressive, really dismisses the value of people with Down syndrome in terrible ways. In fact, um, a study in that was done between 2011 and 2015, tracked uh, live births to conceptions of people with Down syndrome in Europe. And did you know that, that in Spain, in that time frame of four years, a person conceived who had this, this matter of Down syndrome, this issue of Down syndrome, had an 83% chance of being murdered before they were born. 83%, only 17% of babies conceived who had Down syndrome, only 17% of them made it to, to life, to, to live a, a life. And, and this is very common. That was the most extreme example in Spain, but very common in Scandinavian countries and, and uh, northern European countries as well. This is so shameful. And I think at times we, we've just become used to statistics like that. Made in the image of God. People made in the image of God. Disposable. Killed. Lives ruined. Not only the life of that little one who is so vulnerable, the life of a mother and a father who is altered by a tragic decision to regard that little life as being uh, as lacking any value. So in just a handful of words here in the Bible, we have everything we need for understanding the value of all human life. In the image of God, He has made us. Male and female, He has made us. And this, this gives a value to people that is sacrosanct. Moving forward, beyond how we just think of other people, uh, this passage also teaches us that male and female are made equally in the image of God. So especially among ancient religions, Genesis 1 gives us a revolutionary teaching that male and female have the same value in God's eyes, both being made in His image. And we will dig into this a lot deeper in the coming weeks as we study Genesis 2 very closely. We'll, we'll take our time in these three foundational chapters of the Bible. But for today's purposes, we need to establish that there is no hierarchy of value between male or female. But male and female are equally made in the image of God with a heart and a will and a mind that, that ought to reflect um, God's imprint on each of us. But in addition to the value of being made in God's image, we can think of the demands so it's not just a word of comfort that you matter in God's sight today, but with this comes responsibilities or demands on our lives as well. So the first thing that we find 
as a demand on humanity is that, that humanity has dominion over the world that God has made in a way that's different than the other creatures that God has designed. We found that in our passage saying, let them, that is male and female, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So in the same way that we'll learn a lot more about male and female in the coming weeks, we'll learn a lot more about this, this matter of having dominion over creation in the coming weeks. But, but suffice to say for today that God has given authority over his created world to humanity in a way that is different than the rest of the creatures that God has made. So, what other way does being made in God's image imply a demand on how we think of ourselves, how we think of other people, or even on the purpose of humanity? If people are made in the image of God, it should be our goal to become more like God. And this requires a lot of unpacking, I would say. It should be our goal to become more and more like our Creator. If we're made in God's image, we should desire to more fully and clearly image God in our thoughts, in our actions, how we interact with other people. When sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, all their descendants would still be considered image bearers of God. And so it's not as though sin ruins completely the image of God in a person because we still have value, we still have minds and hearts and wills. But it does cloud our understanding of those attributes. We could think of sin as, as kind of smudging the image of God. It's still there and every person still has value, but we can't always see it so well, can we? We, we have uh, sin infecting our understanding of the value of other people being made in God's image. Or we could see that sometimes people sin and they do things that are not imaging God, and so that would cause us to be confused about the, the value of that other person. But Jesus comes to restore us not just to bring us into heaven someday, but come, he came to, to make us more like God so that we would be fuller image bearers of God. Jesus didn't just save us so that we would be near God someday. He saved us so that we could become more like the one whose image we bear. This doesn't mean that we will ever become gods as the Mormon as the Mormons teach, they falsely teach, brothers and sisters, there is one God and no other, and so we will never become gods, but the image of God should become clearer and clearer upon a Christian as God refines us to look more and more like him in terms of our desires and our character, the things that we love. Jesus taught this very thing often, actually. The New Testament um, you see the teaching again and again, and, and it's really summarized in Matthew 5, 48, again in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so, in that case, the image of God is perfection. And in this life, we won't attain to a, a moral perfection, but we should be 
becoming more and more like that image of perfection and holiness, of moral purity, as Christ refines us by his Holy Spirit. And that is, is taught very clearly and explicitly, actually, in Colossians 3, 5 through 10, where uh, the Apostle Paul wrote, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, So this is what clouds the image of God in us. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. This has profound applications and implications for how we think of ourselves as Christians. This means that when we want someone to believe that Jesus' death and resurrection accomplish the forgiveness of their sins and their eternal salvation. The goal isn't just that that person would go to heaven someday instead of hell, but that person who's born again in Christ will be renewed in the knowledge, in the image of your Creator. You'll look more and more like God, look more and more like Christ. That Hebrew says is the perfect image of the invisible God. And so we have in this passage, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, not just a description of what humanity is, but even after the fall, we have here a description of what humanity will be through Christ. The image of God, perfectly displaying His imprint um, as we, we grow, as we live, and one day as we live with him in heaven, in perfection. One of the most significant challenges to Christianity is when people say Christians don't behave as much like Jesus as they should. Maybe you know the the little quote from Gandhi, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Um, This is a common rebuttal to the Christian faith that That church-going people at times are not living an attractive moral life, aren't aren't really doing what is is good. And uh, sometimes that's misunderstood from the perspective of the person who's viewing it because those people don't always have a correct understanding of what Christ would be like. But, But instead of becoming defensive to that accusation, we could use it as an opportunity to share the gospel That when somebody would say, you Christians aren't as much like Jesus as you should be, we could say, oh, that is true. Because of sin, the image of God that we present to other people is tarnished. And what are we going to do about that? What are we going to do? How are we going to respond to a problem like that, which we all know is a problem in our own hearts at times? That we're not as much like Jesus, we're not as much like God as we should be. Is the result then, is the the response to disbelieve in God altogether? I hope not. But the response should be to accept salvation through Christ and then through Him 
we would be increasingly renewed in the knowledge in the image of our Creator. That we would be sanctified. So, somebody could approach you and say, you claim to be transformed by Jesus and yet you did something that wasn't perfect. You did something wrong, something bad. And the Christian can respond and say, even though my salvation was achieved in an instant at the cross of Christ, I still am being renewed and more into the likeness of Jesus. I still have work to do. I still have sanctification, purification that needs to happen in my life. And the Christian, um, maybe with a bit of a grin, can say, can you imagine how rotten I would be without Jesus? Can you imagine how, how much worse I would be morally, ethically, in my desires, in my goals, in my schedule, in my work, in my interactions with other people. Can you imagine how much worse I'd be if I weren't more renewed into the likeness of my Creator through Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, from Genesis 1, we we learn not only what a human is, but we learn from this passage and then really through the whole rest of the Bible what a person is meant to be. What a person is meant to be. Maybe you came to church today knowing that you are not who you should be. You know, we have this sense when we sin. That means your conscience hasn't been seared and that the Spirit of God is at work in you. We have this sense when we sin, I did what I should not have done. I am sometimes what I should not be. I have desires sometimes that I should not have. And then in Genesis, God tells us, you still have value. You still matter to God. And in the rest of the Bible, we read the story of how you can be transformed. How you can be transformed into that person who God wants you to be. Who God has designed you to be. That person who will show other people what God is like what the the character, the image of God is like. Brothers and sisters, you have a creator. And you can not only enjoy restored relationship with him through Christ, but you can even be made more like him, more like into the person who God designed you to be if you come to Christ so that you would be renewed. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.